Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 99 of the Appendix N Book Club. And today we are discussing Lord Dunsany's Don Rodriguez. And with me today is mine host of the Dragon and Knight, Hoy. Uh, I have not murdered anyone this weekend yet, but not for lack of trying. <laughs> <laughs> you and your spidery ways. Indeed. <laughs> and today we are also joined by artist and fantasy cartographer, Alyssa Faden. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, having me on, gentlemen. I'm absolutely pumped to be here. And thank you, actually, we'll get into this later, I'm sure, for introducing me to such a wonderful book. Absolutely. And I've got to say, one thing I'm really excited about, I'm a big Teagle Manor dork, and I would love to hear about your massive Teagle Manor map project. Can you Can you tell both me and our listeners more about this? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm a uh, professional cartographer and primarily I work with the tabletop RPG industry, uh, you know, Monty Cook, uh, Copold Publishing, Frogguard Games, etc., cetera, uh, creating maps for them. And in, in my journeys here, I was approached by Frogguard Games uh, because they have the rights to Teagle Manor. Uh, the publishing rights, and they were sort of kicking it up into the 21st century. They were rewriting a, a more current iteration for 5e, and they asked if I would do the map. Now, I tend to get approached to do maps um, when something special is needed. I, You know, there's a lot of cartographers out there that could just create let's just call it plans. And mm-hmm. uh, so you know where A is in relationship to C or where room 27 is uh, notated. But I am contacted when someone wants uh, a showstopper, so to speak. And uh, this was where Tigo Manor came in because they didn't want to just have a Tigo Manor drawn, um, let's say a two page spread inside the book. They wanted something that had wow factor. So we decided to draw it at the almost, well, exact scale of five feet in game is one inch in real life, which translated to a map that was almost exactly 12 feet by 12 feet. Wow. And if you're doing a map at that sort of scale, then the detail better match, right, guys? I mean, at this at this point, your players are able to lean in and see a room and every single little nail in the floorboard. So that's what we did. That's what we drew. Uh, so I, I decided, you know, I'm well known for doing maps, and I kind of you you start to worry about my um, mental health a little bit. <laughs> you know, when you look at them, you're like, is she all there? And <laughs> Teagle has that, right? So. I got their, um, I got the draft of their rewrite, uh, their rewritten uh, book, and I would actually I twitch stream the whole thing, and I would read a description out. I, I kept spoilers out of it, and I would draw what I just read out uh, down to floating plates in a room or a loaf of bread on a table with flour on the floor. We went nuts. It's a, it's an artistic piece. It's a wonderful piece. Every room tells a story. Even if, even if the actual uh, scenario itself doesn't describe 
a room, we put something in there. Even if it's just a bloody knife on the bedside table. Just so <laughs> players would look at it and go, oh, no. what's going on here? And no. every room has that. And it was, a, honestly, it was an absolute joy to do. It was my mm. Sistine Chapel ceiling. There you go. Where can somebody get this? Oh, uh, so Fuck Out Games, and I think it's literally fuckoutgames.com. Uh, they, they actually are selling this. Uh, the, the, they're selling the book, and I think they have a sword and wizardry version of this too, which is their in-house um, game system mm-hmm. uh, or and a 5e system. And I'll be honest, because I actually had nothing to do with the book itself. I tend to draw maps. I'm lucky if I even get to see the book after the fact. Uh, but I got the pleasure of actually picking up one of these books and handling it. And it has to be maybe one of the most beautiful books, the best laid out books that I've ever encountered. Uh, what they did was not only is my map a four page sort of fold out inside the book itself, but they, they cut it up to accompany each room description. Ah, so you lovely. get the room description and this beautiful picture of the room itself as well. And I don't, you don't get to see that often. Love that. And it's a, beautiful print it really 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 truly is uh, of course they sell it on pdf as well and you can still buy i believe the 12 foot version as well which is printed on cloth oh wow wow <laughs> <laughs> now this uh i mean you're again you're known for these you know these um capstone you know uh works for again you know as you say showstoppers um, did your interest in cartography uh, predate or coincide with your interest in gaming? Uh, how did those two fields of yours evolve together? I like the word capstone, by the way. That's, yeah. that's nice. Yes. Um, the, so it was hand in hand, honestly, gentlemen. So, you know, I'm going to date myself a little here. Uh, I, I am a child of the 80s and I was playing Dungeons and Dragons back in the 80s. And... Back then, I mean, there were scenarios. Of course, there were scenarios, but there wasn't that much Dungeons and Dragons material that you could get in my hometown of Chester. I think there was one gaming store that sold the books or the boxed sets. Um, you, you basically got the scenario choices that were in the shop. So there was a there was a great onus to create your own adventures, and if you're creating your own adventures. You're drawing the maps for your own adventures. And there, there was no internet, which is going to break some brains, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you couldn't just get online. There was no, you know, Patreon where you could back, you know, a cartographer and just get maps. There was no online source. There was no random map generators. You're drawing your own, kiddo. You can't even go to the local library. You know, there was they, they, they're not carrying anything. So I, I had to draw my own maps. And so it was very much hand in hand. And were you already like fairly artistic at that point? Uh, you know, in terms of just liking to draw or, or paint. Or oh, heavens like no. no! Oh, heavens okay. no! Uh, I, I uh, you, you know, my my art teacher at school would probably disagree with me. In fact, I know they would disagree with me. Um, but up until very very recently, honestly, I wouldn't even put the word artist next to my name. I I. I I'm a humble person, but also, you know, you look at the likes of Larry Elmore or the mm. uh, incredible artists out there, and I look at their work and go, that is art, mm. you know. And I look at my work and go, I draw squiggly lines on a piece of paper. It is not the same hemisphere. Um, now, I, 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 there was 
a competition back in the day, back in Chester, that I won as a child, and I was probably about 12 years of age. So I know that particular teacher, Mrs. Almond, would argue with me and say, no, 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 you you are an artist. You always have been. But even back then, I was... I did stick figures and it won because I drew a Roman amphitheater with something like 5,000 spectators in the stands. And it was the, oh my God, look at what she's drawn factor versus the artistic merit. I also remember in school, uh, that my, in my later years, maybe 15 or 16, it was coming into our final exams. I happened to be sitting in class next to Peter Hambling. And Peter, if you are out there today, I hope you are doing well. Peter Hambling <laughs> was a straight A student, math, English, literature, didn't matter. Even PE, he was great at everything. And art. I mean, the guy was a savant. And, you know, he's doing an Andy Warhol piece. He's drawing, a, like, a American footballers in one panel, then a robotic version in the next, and an abstract in the next. It was wow factor, guys. It was just wow. I, seriously, I spilt some red ink on a piece of paper that happened to be wet, and it spread out like a spider's web. And then I dropped black ink on the top of that, and it was probably hanging on the school wall for 20 years after I left. Everyone <laughs> was blown away by it. And, but honestly, the amount of effort in there... Uh, the, so do I consider myself artistic? No. Everyone else would disagree with me. I was a cartoonist. <laughs> honestly, I was a cartoonist back then. Yeah, that's what I I, I I actually drew a cartoon for the school rag and it would go up on the wall every single day and everyone would huddle around it and read the latest cartoon. And it was largely Scooby Doo like in nature. I still don't consider that to be art. And were you reading much fantasy, science fiction and horror around this time as well? That's a really good question. So I've always considered myself, uh, I'm, I'm more into the non-literature. I'm a, a little bit of an amateur historian in all truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a bookshelf behind me full of books and there's a lot of ancient history in there uh, or even Napoleonic history. This is what I mainly read. Um, but yes, I would, of course, pick up, um, you know, the the latest story of El, uh, Elric or something mm-hmm. like that and, you know, read through it. Of course, you you, you, you can't avoid it. In fact, um, The Keep was um, one of the books that I remember reading during those years. Is that F. Paul Wilson's? Yes. Yeah, so yes. it's a great book. Very uh, influential on me on, uh, in my role playing, I've got to be honest with you. Right, right. Now, so yeah, you said you were from Chester, right? So Chester yes. actually means uh, Roman camp, right? It's a, a, a city that would have been a Roman camp at one point, right? So was that? It was. It was actually, yeah. um, the original name was Diva. It was yeah. based on a river. Yeah. And the original walls, at least, the, the, the walls are still intact, but it is a city that is 2,000 years old. And so it's got 2,000 years of history also behind so, it. Right I mean, so that to the obviously English must War. have been just like in the in your dna to to be because you're walking around uh, you know this place right so that would very much inform everything the interest you had right or i think that is honestly bang on point i never even thought about it until i actually moved to the united states and this type of conversation would come up and i was like of course i would be influenced by history of course i would be interested by it because i literally walked those roman walls and past roman ruins 
dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And even if it wasn't Roman, I mean, this this is a city that has incredible architecture um, and incredible history that, that, that just stretches all the way back. And so, yeah, I was surrounded by that every single day. There's that appreciation, you know, obviously, obviously a lot of fantasy is a sort of backwards looking. It's a it's a look at a sort of, you know, fictionalized past. But does that also maybe sometimes color it in the other direction where you look at fantasy and say, well, they could really do a lot better because, you know, the real world is so much more fascinating than anything they're trying to depict in this fantasy. Yeah, maybe. I mean, and I say maybe because I'm not sure... I've done that unless it was in response to maybe more of an amateur creation, shall we say. But in most of the pieces I tend to pick up, I I, I tend to be the type of person that tries to look for the inspiration within it um, versus, and and even honestly, that sort of was something that I was actually watching on YouTube. It is a animated series that has some heavy Roman influence and it's, um, it would be very easy for me to sit there and start to critique it. But also one could just take joy in the fact that it has some ancient Roman influence and enjoy the ride. And I tend to be that type of person, but I'm also that type of person, honestly, with real history itself. I mean, what do we know of the ancient world? Maybe 10%. How much do we not know? And so within that 90%, I, I, I am of the mind anything is possible so to speak, you know, um, it, while there are other, let's call them amateur historians, that are, there is no proof for X, therefore X never existed. Right. So I tend to be a lot more forgiving and imaginative uh, in my there responses. Were griffins. Of course, there was no proof that there weren't griffins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I was going to ask if somebody came to you and they were like, you know, Alyssa, I want to read some stuff that's really going to inspire my gaming. Like, what kind of stuff would you be recommending for them to read? This may be a controversial pick, gentlemen, but I'm going to do it because this this would be my response. Wheel of Time. Okay. I would would select Wheel of Time. Two questions. One, why do you think it's controversial? And two, why, why is this your choice? Well, controversial in that probably in all of the people that I have met that have tackled Wheel of Time, and I think I would have to phrase it as tackled. Um, I think maybe 50% don't make it through. Yeah, It's it's not an easy read, and I'm going to admit that, and I think that's what makes it a little controversial. And uh, you mean it, the book or the whole series? The whole series, because, of okay. course, what, there's said, like 12 bucks in, in it now, and it, it's, it's a slog. It becomes mm. a slog, and it becomes a little hard to track. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna iterate any spoilers here, but I mean you start off at this wonderful journey that starts with about four, maybe six characters. And you you follow these characters, and the ideas within the book are nice, and I think the writing is wonderful. But as each book iterates, new characters are inserted. Which okay, you know, not the first time that this happens. Yeah. But the characters then split up and they go their separate ways, and we stay with them. And so you'll be reading one chapter following one particular character, Rand or whoever, and you'll flick over to the next chapter and you're in a completely different place now. It's like you're reading a completely different book. Mm -hmm. And I I found myself sitting there many times going, oh, no, wait, I want to go back to the story I was just reading. (laughs) We we just left off on the cliff notes. Hold on a second. And so... You're constantly, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, and then you'd get into the new chapter and you'd be having fun with that. And by the end of the chapter, you want to stay with it and it would flick 
and now you're onto a third character somewhere else. Yeah. Every single chapter on its own was very entertaining. And each individual character, each individual story was very entertaining. But as the books go on, more and more characters are introduced. They split off more and more and more. By the time you get to book five or six, I I think that you can even go an entire book and the character's not even mentioned because he's in the following book. Uh, And it it becomes very fragmented. Um, And I think that's... I I would say that. I would say Mm. that to someone. And I I know people who read a lot like every day who have had to abandon the series because of this and i acknowledge that but from the sheer volume of inspiration that i got from it just the individual ideas about how magic is perceived and how it is handled even across different cultures right within that particular setting um, I I love that the whole idea of magic being stilled within someone, or the horror of having it stilled within you. Uh, the whole the, uh, the fact that uh, only women are actually trusted with magic because of what has happened in the past to the different schools of magic. Uh, I I got a, I drew a lot from that. I'm going to be honest with you. Perfect. I love it. Great recommendation. Right. And I like how it's the world is going on its own way, right? We can't force it, right? Because it's just everything is happening, right? <laughs> everything is happening. And, you know, I think it was even around book seven or eight, maybe seven, you get this whole new people introduced and they've got a whole different perspective on magic as well. And it's not even a male female thing. Uh, and again, no spoilers, but I mean, I remember reading this and I was like, wow, okay. And it's a wild ride. And I love the whole idea too. And I forget the exact name now, but like the, then the female um, magic users, they're actually, they've got a companion who is their protector mm. and they're bonded and they're bonded in a way almost like with demons uh you know in the golden compass type of series um and i love that too i love that concept of that bonding uh that can even be on different parts of the world so it, I, I think it's got great ideas in there all right so now we're going to go ahead and start chatting about lord dunsany's don rodriguez chronicles of shadow valley and we can start that off with looking at our hygaxian word of the day Obsequies. Obsequies. And obsequies appears twice on page four of the edition that I'm working with. And on that, it says, wait, no, that's not the right page. Page six. (laughs) Um, On page six, it says, now there were no wars at that time so far as was known in Spain, but that old Lord's eldest son, regarding those last words of his father as a commandment, determined then and there in that dim, vast chamber to gird his legacy to him and seek for the wars, wherever the wars might be, so soon as the obsequies of the sepulchre were ended. And of those obsequies I tell not here, for they are fully told in the black books of Spain, and the deeds of that old lord's youth are told in the golden stories. So that is my addition to the Hygaxian word of the day for this week. But Hoy, you also had one you wanted to throw out there. Uh, my word is Hidalgo, which only appears, I think, three times. Uh, I don't have specific uh, citations, but I think it's an important, it's because it's the central concept behind the book. So Hidalgo literally comes from the word Fidalgo, which means son of something. So it was a aristocratic, aristocratic class of the Iberian Peninsula who owned no property, 
but we're exempt from taxes and we're expected to just go and fight. And so they were the part of the Reconquista against the Moorish uh, Spain and then later on became a great part of the Conquistador class, uh, you know, with the colonization of much of the Spanish and Portuguese empire. So Hidalgo. Alisa, do you have a word? Yeah, I, I, I kind of do, but I want to read it as part of the sentence in which it appears because I actually, it's a simple word, but uh, it's, it, it just spoke to me. This, this was the line. Merry and lithe it is, and its true temper singeth when it meets another bla- uh, blade as two friends sing. And for me, it was the singeth. Uh, like, you don't see, I don't think I've ever seen that in another book, maybe ever, singeth. It's true temper singeth. And I was like, oh, that, that, I can hear that. And it was such a wonderful sentence. And I, I, I think it was the word singeth that really got me. There you go. And that's a great scene too, which we'll get to in some a moment. But Absolutely. Yeah. So now we're going to go ahead and chat about which edition of the book that we're working with. Alyssa, which edition of the book are you working with? Actually, gentlemen, I'm not sure what book uh, version I'm actually working with here. Is it an EPUB? Yes. Okay, so you read yours online. Yes. Perfect. So Hoy and I have the 1971 Ballantine adult fantasy version. With a Bob Pepper cover. Yep, our Bob Pepper cover. Wrap around. Um, Yours looks much fresher than mine. Mine looks like it sat in a storefront window and got sun faded over the years. Mine's looking kind of yellowish orange, and yours is like a vibrant red. Mm-hmm. It's an old library copy. Pine Ridge. Ooh. There you go. Mine b- belonged to somebody named Gary Zablakis, and he dated the book for April 23rd, 1974. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Nice. I don't know if you can really see it, but anyways. So that's what it, which edition of the book we're working with. So now we can go ahead and start discussing what we thought of the book. And Alyssa, you've already given us a bit of a hint as to how you feel about this book. Um, but yeah, what, what did you think? I, I I was blown away. I, I've got to be honest with you. Um, I had not heard of this book at all. And I went in not expecting anything. I didn't know what I was going to be reading. And I think it was almost immediately, almost immediately, you are just, you are cusped and carried along by this incredible prose that I would almost describe as poetic. Mm-hmm. gentle, caressing, and charming. Uh, it has the written vibe of almost like the Princess Bride, you know? Mm. And it, 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 was, it was such an innocent, wonderful little piece. That's the way that I would describe it. And it, it, even through scenes that are darker in nature, and darker as in you get the uh, the, uh, the the sense of foreboding that maybe Rodriguez is, is feeling at the time. Uh, even in those scenes, the descriptions of them are so invocative that I couldn't put the book down, so to speak. I just couldn't do it. It's like, and I think it, it, it does that throughout, even right at the, near the end of the book, um, it, it, the narrator, and I love the fact that it is presented as a narrator, and the narrator describes this this scene, but in so does so in, in a way that is 
And I am not going to be able to encapsulate the beauty of what then transpires. My words will fail me. And obviously, I'm somewhat paraphrasing. And even in that, you get a sense of the wonderment that is about to unfold in front of you. And it it is the whole thing from cover to cover is a series of that. Um, And I am not sure I have ever read a book like it. And I mean that in the very best of ways. I agree completely. And and uh, before we record our episodes with our guests, we always meet up with our patrons beforehand and have a discussion with them about the book. And one of the things I was talking about with our patrons is how Lord Dunsany will always choose to, or to choose to use 20 words where he could use two, but he does so in such an engaging and beautiful way. Like there's one thing on page 68 where he is basically just saying that this character is doing this thing because he felt socially obliged to. But rather than saying that, what Dunsany says is, reader, your friend shows you his collection of stamps, his fossils, his poems, or his luggage labels. One of them interests you. You look at it a while. You are ready to go away. Then your friend shows you another. This also must be seen, for your friend's collection is a precious thing. I love that. I love that so much. (laughs) And it, it tells you what he's... It it communicates to the reader exactly what he's trying to communicate, but he does it in this like really poetic, beautiful, breathtaking and relatable way. Right. Can I also say I love that particular sentence because I'm a a serial semicolon abuser and that sentence has two semicolons in it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. So good. Yeah. Yeah, Hoy, how, how did you feel about the book? I love this book. And I, again, am surprised. Uh, we've done, uh, this is our third Dunsany book now we've done on this project, uh, starting with The King of Elfland's Daughter, which is probably his most famous novel. Uh, and yeah. then we did The Charwoman's Shadow. And I'm just constantly surprised why this book is not spoken of in the same terms as those two other books. You know, and it's not, you know, has not been reprinted anywhere near as often. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's just too deceptively simple on the face of it, like you mentioned, Elisa. Uh, that Alyssa, that it's just too much like a derivation of Don Quixote on the surface of it or something like that, that it just doesn't reach that heights of consciousness. Like, oh, this is such an amazing, you know, out there fantasy. But as soon as you get into there, like literally that passage you have, you read, they're in the house of that wizard, the slave of yeah. Orion, which is as fantastical as anything out of Jack Vance or any other you know author that we've read for this project. So absolutely, yeah, I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. In that scene, the wizard, who is also the professor of magics at the University of Sargossa, uh, where they also mentioned, because Alyssa was talking about how it's how the, the writing style is almost poetic, um, he also discusses how poetry is one of the magics that are taught at the University of Sargossa. But um, there's this great moment where he sends our main character, Don Rodriguez, and his assistant, Murano, out into space. And they um, and they like astral project off to like the mountains of the sun. Alyssa, what did you think of that scene? Oh, no, actually, honestly, as you two gentlemen were talking, I was thinking of that scene. So it's funny that you would bring that scene up. What it was an incredible scene. I was there with them, without a doubt, on this incredible experience. I'm not even going to call it a journey that they had. It was an experience. Experience and every single word captured it beautifully. And it just, in fact, beautiful is a weak word. It was, it was a perfect scene. 
Uh, it was um, awe-inspiring, though, in the old sense of awe, right? Yes. You know? um, yes. And Jeff, you had talked about this in the book club, how, again, you know, there's an artificial delineation between um, science fiction and fantasy in this day and age, and this is that perfect example of that, right? This is, um, for something that's using such um, obvious attempt to use archaic language, as I'm saying, yet this particular scene is, as far as we know, relatively accurate to the science that we knew of the solar system in the 1920s, right, Jeff? If you want to explain yeah, on that. Yeah, I mean, he straight up says he travels eight and a half minutes at the speed of light to the to the, to, to the sun. And it's like, I, I don't actually know how long by, it takes us to get to the sun via the speed of light. But that sounds right. And this was written in 1922. <laughs> right. And to even have something written in 1922 sound that scientifically accurate in a fantasy story is fascinating to me. And I also love how we start off our kind of journey into the House of Wonder by they see like this lone house on the hill. And when they walk up and they press the doorbell, they just hear somebody scream. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that had to have been a fluke. So they do it again. And then the person, somebody screams again. Right. I just love the idea of like the doorbell that is like torturing somebody right. to get the it, attention of the person who needs to answer right. it. It's very Adam's family by well, anonymity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> by well, anonymity. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we have the entire thing come crumbling down because Murano now flashes a flying pan cross at the at the wizard and he's like you have deceived me right right <laughs> and I, I thought Milano Milano and that flying pan were <laughs> it was incredible because it wasn't just one scene was right. it yeah. I mean it, 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 even right up until the end it's like you're you're gonna have to get that flying pan off Milano before <laughs> I talk to him and it's just <laughs> I, and I can picture that. And that was the type of scene, too, where it was very Princess Bride right. to me. Yes. And, and, it's, and it's so funny because that frying, the, that passage that you cited, Alyssa, is about, you know, the duel that, you know, Don Rodriguez and, and the brother are having and, you know, that beauty right there. And then it's punctuated three times with this comedic moment with the frying pan. The frying yes. pan is as much of a character <laughs> as Don Rodriguez's sword or any other object that's <laughs> in the book. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of how, um, Alyssa, have you played Dungeon Crawl Classics? You have. So one of the things that's always fun about Dungeon Crawl Classics is when you play a zero level character, like there's very, you, you know, basically nothing about your character except their occupation and some like dumb random item they have. Right. And like Murano feels like it's some character and they're just frying pan was like the random item that they had, but the player just like ran with it and, and like made this it. like dumb right. item, like the centerpiece of this character. <laughs> and like I just, I loved that so much. I think that's actually really on point. I didn't even think of it in that way before, but you're hundred percent right. And he, he steals the show in oh, that, yeah. from that perspective. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, the other hero of the book is directly related to the frying pan, which is bacon. <laughs> right? Bacon <laughs> yes. is like what cures, <laughs> brings people to life, you know, brings people around the fire. <laughs> you know, I also I love when Don Rodriguez first meets Murano and he's like, you, sir, you are hungry. And Murano's like, well, of course I am hungry. If I was not hungry, I would starve. <laughs> <laughs> and like that right there kind of tells you all you need to know about Murano. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's marvelous. Alyssa, what did you think of the scenes with the um, staring into the, 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 the windows that showed us the wars of the past and the wars of the future? Oh, that was great. Um, 
how do I encapsulate that? I mean, because there was so much about the book that really, you know, um, caught me and stayed with me even after I finished with it. That scene almost gets overshadowed. And yet in many ways, that's his purpose, right? And so when he's there and he's looking through these windows, there is this sense, I had this sense of wonderment uh, with that section. Um, and I, I also, uh, I, I, dare I say, it, a level of trepidation too, because I was wondering where things were going to go with this. And uh, we're, we're barely, we're not even halfway through the book, if I remember rightly, at this particular point. No, and I think I'm this like, is the third Chronicle of 12. Right. And I'm like, is, is, is he going to step through this window? What is, is this where this book is going? Mm-hmm. And so you, you have, uh, honestly, I remember feeling almost this childlike joy waiting to see what happens when you turn over the page, you know? Yeah. It was an, it, it, it captured adventure to me, that right. scene, but to be honest with you. Right. And it's interesting to me because, um, and I talked about this a little bit in the book club, uh, Lord Dunsany literally was a veteran of two wars and volunteered for a third war and was in the, you know, was wounded during the uh, Easter uprising in Ireland. So he's not any stranger to witnessing violence being aware of violence um and he's not he's not against it but he's also aware of the costs right and and it's it's there it's very lightly there if you're not looking for it but if you are looking for it you're like oh my goodness right like when he's talking about the wars of the past and how they come down to us as these glorious events but then when he actually sees them, you see that how much of it is just contingent. It's dumb luck. It's yeah. <laughs> you know, it's messy. The, it's yeah. scary. Right. It's chaotic. And then the future wars are, are no better because they become, you know, we're become components of machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the whole purpose of our hero here is he's looking for the wars. And yet, Sani does this incredible job of it's it while to our character they are the the noble thing he is chasing and they're almost flowery and this abstract heroic thing he's chasing um Duncan brings us back down to no they're they're bad he doesn't mm-hmm. glorify them at all uh, if anything you're like oh this is dark the the the, the walls are not good at all and they're only going to get worse yeah and so he really does a magnificent job of not glorifying war at all but nor does he go through this fairy tale uh for that's how it feels um like um telling us that they're all doom and gloom it's it's almost not about the war in, yeah. in this odd type way um and i i thought that scene did a great job of that kind of bringing the reader our learned reader back down to earth a little bit Mm. absolutely and in our patron book club um one of our attendees adam styers made a really excellent observation that i had not made which is that um don rodriguez leaves his home seeking the wars and the reason he in his ideas he's going to go he's going to find the wars and the wars are going to win him his castle He never finds the wars, but he does win a castle. But what's interesting is he does not win the castle through the wars or through violence or through killing. He wins the castle by saving somebody from being hanged. 
And even in that moment, Don Rodriguez and Murano are walking to, along the road and they see the, the guards who are about to hang this guy. And rather than save this person through violence, they save them through like, you know, trickery and just kind of some like silliness. Um, so, but ultimately that is what allows for him to get the, the, the gift that he was going after. Right. It's the quality of mercy that he has. Cause even when he does go into that battle and he cracks that guy's helmet, he, he ransoms him, right? He says, okay, you know, you're, you're, you know, you can live if you give me, if you have a castle and, right, and it turns yes. out the guy doesn't even have a castle. <laughs> he was no, what are you talking about? He had a castle. Had a castle the wizard took it. it. <laughs> <laughs> that scene was amazing. Right. <laughs> like, Maria, Maria. <laughs> Why why are you in the wizard's house and where is our castle? Exactly. Did the wizard steal the castle? And she goes, yes, Pedro. Yeah. Exactly. That, yes, Pedro. That happened yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and Murata's like, they're lying. They're lying. They're like, no, we swear on the cross. And he's like, they swear on the cross. Like, they can't be lying. <laughs> <laughs> the little the little child holds up the cross. Says, I swear on it. <laughs> oh, that scene was incredible. Yeah. yeah. So this is on the list of things, um, this author is on the list of things that Gary Gygax recommended that people read for gaming inspiration. Alyssa, do you feel like this book is is a good go-to for gaming inspiration? I do, I do. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say yes for three different reasons, actually, that aren't necessarily related. One is the wonderful scene setting. Um, I think... Um, not less so as a player, but more as a game master of any description. Read this book; it mm-hmm. will, it will, it will introduce you to ways of describing a scene, a room, a camp, a series of gentlemen sitting around a campfire that few others do. You can, you can get great inspiration from this scene setting, without a doubt. And I'd like to pause there for a quick second, because I think your first point is a great point. And Hoy, you brought up something interesting about hex crawls Mm, and wilderness, I think, really relates to this point nicely. Right. And yeah, Alyssa, I I was, uh, again, because you're a cartographer, one thing I was really struck by in this book is how they talk about how long it takes to travel from here to there. I say, I am walking and it is almost yes to time. I've covered nine miles or... Uh, you know, now we're on the horse, but we can only go this many miles today on the horse and tomorrow the horse will be tired. And so it will only go 40 miles, sir. You know, um, so I was wondering how that struck you, because some, a lot of times we think like a horse, like a motorcycle in a fantasy, in, in a fantasy novel, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just hop on the horse, you know, you know, put some, uh, you know, make sure you pour some hay in it at the end of the day, you know. And I think that's a really valuable point that you're bringing up um, that honestly I didn't think about. Um, and I didn't think about it because, um, I mean, I've been GMing since the 80s and you, you have to start really thinking about these overland journeys mm-hmm. and i think a lot of um game masters out there redline it you know um, yeah uh, and this is this is a great way to not redline it to mm-hmm. make that journey part of the adventure and in mm-hmm. fact honestly really that's what this book was yes um, it gives you this great, and you 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 raise an awesome point with the horses and the fact that they're now tired. So if 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 active anything, you're going slower. If you just said that as a game master to your group, it would bring so much character into your game. You know, you just added a detail 
to yeah. the game that is simple. It's elegant in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. And yet your players, every single one would be struck by it. They'd go, oh, yeah. And they, they, they would be there. They would be in the scene and they'd probably imagine these horses being tired, breathing a little heavy. They might even start to picture, you know, the mist of breath coming out of the, uh, their nostrils and all from that simple point. And that, that, mm-hmm. that this book does a lot of that. Absolutely. And like when they're talking about traveling by river and a portion of the travel was going to be upstream and just the idea of like thinking about upstream or downstream is a really simple idea that like you can very easily throw in very simple mechanics for like, okay, if you're going downstream, we'll double the speed. If you're going upstream, we'll half it. Maybe not that extreme, but like it's something that you could totally do as a GM that's very simple right. that also throws in a lot of flavor. And that's absolutely from this, right. from this text. They, that they have to bargain with this fisherman. It's not a motorboat, right? It doesn't just go at a constant speed, right? <laughs> you know, the fisherman exactly. is going to row for five hours a day. And then the, the other two of them will also row, but they're not as anywhere near as competent as the fishermen because they haven't lived their whole lives on the river. You know, absolutely. Yeah, that's marvelous. So, Alyssa, I'd love to hear uh, points two and three now. Sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no. no. Um, well, you know, one of my other points too then um, is the side characters. These um, let's call them NPCs. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I'm not going to put Moano in that. And Moano is a player character. Yeah, exactly. Same, exactly. Same thing man <laughs> on his character sheets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, he is star player without a doubt. But yeah. the. Uh, for for a game master too, um, these characters, how e- even right at the very beginning, when Rodriguez goes to the village and the village is all in darkness and there's no one around, and he goes up to you know this inn, and the the scene where you know he he's knocking on this door, but you just hear this shuffling uh, going on, and the way that we are introduced then to the the barman, so to speak, the inn owner, um, the description of him as a character, very quickly, you start, the mind's eye, just you start to picture it. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think you can absolutely get a lot from this book in that way. Just as you're reading through it, it's not just the scenes now. It's not just those details. It's the people that are in it, that are inhabiting it. Mm-hmm. And every single one, very quickly, very elegantly, very simply, just the words, the phrases that are used to encapsulate them tells you everything that you need to know about them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is honestly one of the most underused aspects of a GM. You know, you, you start talking about his plimp soles or the color of his pants. No, there's none of that here. There's none of that at all. And it works way more effectively. I like how the second innkeeper was suddenly like really uh, obsequious and helpful to Don Rodriguez. And that's only after uh, Murano had mentioned that (laughs) Don Rodriguez had killed the previous, (laughs) killed the, uh, you know, the sort of evil innkeeper at the beginning. (laughs) It's like, oh, you know, oh, the service is really good here. You know, but Don Rodriguez (laughs) is not even aware of this because Murano has just been (laughs) telling the story. Yeah, and it's just a simple thing where it says the inn, this inn seemed to promise murder, or so the young man's intuition said, and the young are wise to trust their intuitions. <laughs> so it's like you can it's it's a it's a simple thing where you can like just tell your PCs or tell your players, like, yeah, you're approaching this inn, but something about it just like you kind of get a vibe that this is a place you're gonna get shanked in your sleep. You're not sure why, but y- you are. <laughs> and I, if I may add then to that. He had neither beard nor mustache, but wore hideous whiskers. 
yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling a little attacked by that because of the bald spots on my, my facial hair. But <laughs> See, that right there, just uh, neither beard nor mustache, but hideous whiskers. <laughs> One sentence, and so I good. have what I need out of this right. character. I understand what's right. going Speaking on. Speaking of here. facial hair, I loved how. Uh, uh, Rodriguez mourned his mustaches when he was, went into disguise and had to cut, the, you know, shave them off, and then Morano stuck them on his face. But the, by the end of the story, they've just grown back just enough so that he can. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what was your third major takeaway? So from the third story? one, you know, I've done two for uh, GMs here. So let let's throw something to the players. So as players, reading this is worthwhile because there are certain things that our characters do that are just add so much to the scene and let's talk about the jewel but what starts the jewel is he puts a handkerchief on the floor and he he puts his mandolin on the handkerchief and leans it on the wall and i loved that particular little vignette so to speak because i think as a player if you said that you know if you actually brought that to the table as a part of role-playing, everyone would benefit at the table. Everyone would be able to picture the scene that little bit more. Um, and the other part of this as a player is look at our characters and how they, I'm going to say stay in character. Uh, look at how Rodriguez is appalled when Morano helps him with the frying pan by you know, winning the jewel <laughs> for him. And he is appalled. Why would you do this? And I would love to see my players do the same sort of thing. You know, if those were two players at the table, they would be getting the award for role playing for the day because they were both very much in character, you know? I love that. Yeah, because three times he does strikes him with the frying pan and he doesn't understand why. He has that look like a dog that knows it's done something bad, but doesn't know what the thing it has done that, (laughs) you know, that Murano. (laughs) And so. Yeah, the frying pan is just as much, uh, yeah, it's so, just as integral to Morano's character as the sword is to to Don Rodriguez. Look, and even, I'm going to even say, look at the mandolin. Oh, I mean, absolutely. the mandolin features quite a lot. And I think a lot of players would miss that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. again, I think if you put some random characters in front of players and, yes, you've got a rapier, well, great, yes, of course I do. I'm a knight. Of course I should have a rapier and the mandolin. I think a lot of players would go, oh, what now? What, what have I got? And I think little details like that add so much. Mm-hmm. It took me a second to find it, but I, I love on page 148 of my text where um, where Murano thinks he's finally understanding like where he went wrong with the whole frying pan thing. And he's like, okay, so none shall kill you that you have not chosen to kill you, and those that you choose shall kill you whenever you have in mind. And then Rodriguez is like, ah, sure, close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that cracked me up. Those are all really great observations about like why this is a good text to turn to for gaming inspiration, and I, I completely agree. One of the things that I was thinking about is how I like that although... There's a lot of depth to the storytelling here that on the surface, a lot of the things that happen seem to be pretty lightly sketched. Um, And I like that. For example, I can see very easily just as a GM writing down um, that the players are going to, upon the road, find uh, three or four knights who are hanging a man. 
And you might say to your, and you might have written down, if they free the man, they find out that this man is the king of the forest and can give them, uh, can give them safe passage to the forest. There, there we go. It's done. And as a GM, I would probably be thinking like either my players are going to avoid this entirely or they're going to deal with this with combat. But instead of doing either, my player surprised me and they go up and they try to like bargain with them and try to use like a little bit of humor and deceit to save this person. And it really just kind of felt like as the G- it's a great um, example of how a GM can roll with something not going the way they planned, but also how like we just need to write very simple outlines of what might happen and let our players mm-hmm. do the work, the heavy lifting for yeah. us. And I love the follow up with that, which is at that point, he had never the king of the forest, uh, you know, king of Shadow Valley never reveals that he's the king of Shadow Valley. It's only revealed later. But he takes yeah, that much t- later. He takes that, uh, you know, ask him if he has a gold coin and he just goes to work carving on this coin. They're wondering what it is. So they know that they've been given a favor, but they don't know what the nature of that favor is. And so I, I like anything that creates an incentive to go more, to look for more in our game. Right. And to let, leave the players wondering. But know that they've gotten something good, but don't know what it is. I love that, you know? Yeah, and I was even, I feel like, you know, a good twist is when the reader discovers it at the same time as the characters. And for me, like, maybe I was being very naive. I thought that the writers in the, that the, that the archers in the forest thought he was the king of the forest because he had that emblem. I didn't realize that he had saved the king of the forest. I thought this person just kind of knew how to, like, scratch this thing on so that the people would think that he was the king. Um, so it was also a bit of a surprise to me. I mean, I started, I, I did figure it out before Don Rodriguez did, but not as early as I could have figured it out. Yeah, I like those little tokens, these little things like that, you know, and, and giving out like mundane but unique items. So it's not always like a plus one sword or something like, but something that a player will hold on to. Like, oh, I really prize that, you know. Um, like it came up in my game y- yesterday. Uh, we were playing... Uh, Lauren's Song of the Bachelor by Zedek Sue. And they just rolled on a random table. And one of the things you come up with is a little gold bird, songbird, that you can wind up. And it sings, but it sings at above the pitch. A human can't hear it. (laughs) Right. But one of my characters, who was actually Adam in the uh, reading group, he plays a crab man. So he's got claws that are too big to to manipulate this thing. So one of the other player characters said, oh, let me wind that for you. Wound it for him and let it go. But they couldn't hear a thing. But he's a crab. He's got antenna. So he could hear these songs that nobody could hear. <laughs> that's so he amazing. Loves this thing, I love that. But he can't wind it up himself. One of the other players has to wind it for him. One of the other characters. Oh, that's you so see, flavorful. That, that right there, yeah. that almost belongs in this book. That right. has yeah. that charm. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, everything you just said yeah. is, is beautiful. Yeah. You know, that's exactly the spirit of it. And it's interesting when we like. I feel like we all understand the legacy of Lovecraft in the in the the fiction that followed him. But I feel like looking even further back at like Dunsany, I feel like the the, the Dunsany's legacy is, I think, really pretty unheralded in the in the modern world. Like, yes, there are reprints of his work available, but I don't think people realize just how fundamental. Lord Dunsany was in shaping what is um, what we what we what we think of his fantasy today. I think that's fair, and I say that from someone who is a big Lovecraft fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm huge on Call of Cthulhu role playing, uh, but I'll tell you what I don't think. Uh, and I've read some incredible lines from his work that really well, cause you to take an insanity role, um, but. <laughs> 
I've never quite read something where, it, if I may, the great spiders descended out of such heights that you could not see whence they came and ascended again into blackness. It was a chamber of prestigious height. I loved that. Yeah. And you're right. From I mean, that, I honestly, I was there with Rodriguez in that room. It felt dark. The ceiling was out of height. It was beyond sight. It was in the darkness. There were gnats, uh, rats clawing on little bones in the corner. I could feel it. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. I was there. Right. And Amazing. it was so eloquently put. It was right. beautiful. And I don't think I've ever read something quite like that right. from H.P. Lovecraft. And it was perfect. He was like the line right there between Poe on one side and then leading to Lovecraft with Lovecraft's Dreamland stories yes. or the rats yes. in the walls uh, with that rat, the rats crawling everything. Um, and yeah, and Dunsany's Gods of Pagano was a huge influence on the Cthulhu mythos. Right. Oh, I did not know that. I yeah. will have to check that one no, out. Spe- oh, yeah. Specifically the Dreamland stories, but yeah, a lot of the Cthulhu mythos stories later on. Yeah. H.P. Lovecraft has never shied away from very specifically citing Lord Dunsany as one of his most major influences. Right. So it's not even a, a connection that we're drawing contemporarily. Like he was stating those influences at the time right. in his letters. Gentlemen, I am not only educated, but I'm going to go away after this, and I'm going to get that those books. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, you know, yeah, and, they're very cool. And right here, obviously, we see some other things. That we see a very direct influence on Jack Vance with the, all the scenes in the House of Wonder, which is very much like the Dying Earth stories. The, the slave of uh, Orion is very much a Dying Earth wizard, right? Yep, yep. Um, and we also have, when he pulls the blade out, he describes it, as you said, it singeth. So we've got, like, this singing blade, and yeah. he talks about it's, like, its personality. And although, like, we don't really kind of get more into the blade, like, singing or having a personality later, it very felt very proto the Broken Sword and very proto uh, um, Elric's yeah. Stormbringer. Right. Um, but also, we've yet to read The Sword of Wellerin, which is another Lord Dunsany story, which is apparently, like, the real, like, that's that's where the Broken Sword really comes from, and Elric really comes from the Broken right, Sword. Right. So that's, like, the real proto-Elric. Right. Well, and this is the sword in um, King of Elfland's Daughter, too, which is also... Also true. Right. So, no, he's definitely got that. I think also yeah. um, comedic value here is also a big influence on Fritz Leiber and, you know, Agreed. the great, Faffer and the Grey Master story. So I think there's a lot going on here. Absolutely. And we are running out of time. Alyssa, are there any last thoughts about Don Rodriguez, the Chronicles of Shadow Valley that you wanted to share with us? Honestly, gentlemen, I really just appreciate you making this title, um, just putting it onto my radar, uh, because I think I would have completely missed it. And my life would actually be a little bit less because of that. Uh, This was a... (laughs) A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I do think he's grossly underrated. Um, and I, I I feel like my, I, I am a little richer for having been introduced to this. I love that. That makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> it does. And do you have any projects that our listeners should be aware of that you're working on right now? I'm always working on projects. Um, I am I am working on a, a couple of maps that unfortunately I can't talk about uh, because they're a little bit sort of NDA-like, so I'll keep them to one side. But I am also working on one of the largest city maps that I've drawn in a very, very long time. Um, it's the Age of Antiquity map. And with a population of 200,000, wow. it's, it, it's a, a 
going to be a monster map, maybe about 50 inches across. So watch for that one, because I think it's getting kickstarted um, or published around October of this year. So watch my social media channels, because I will be talking about it a lot. Right. And you have a regular uh, regular Patreon subscription too, right? It's for, for people to follow your work as well? Yes, I, I, I do. I am on um, Patreon, and I offer not only glimpses into maps that I've done in the past that I don't show anyone else. I talk about how I draw my maps. I give guides and how-tos, um, videos, um, written compendiums to those videos, uh, map components so people can actually create their own maps. And um, I actually sometimes talk about um, even just pieces of work that I found even to be a little bit embarrassing that I drew back in the 80s. That I, I, I revealed them um, for everyone, and I talk about them uh, as well as to what my thought process was and as I explore styles and start to establish what I did today. Yeah, and it's a great way of showing your growth as an artist to show, like, here's where I was at one point and here's where I am now. You had mentioned your social media. Um, if folks want to follow you on social media or if they want to take a look at more of your cartography, where can they do that? So I, I, I you could start simply by going to AlyssaFaden.com um, and all of my social media channels are there. But on Instagram, Twitter, Twitch, uh, I am at Facebook. I'm Alyssa Faden. So that's a very easy way to find me. There you go. Perfect. And Hoy, how about us? All right. Yes. If you want to get in touch with us, drop us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yeah. So our patrons are able to join us before we record our episodes. And today we were joined by Dan Alexander and Adam Styers, And we had a great conversation about that. In addition to that, our patrons, starting with episode 101, are going to be able to help us choose which books we are going to be covering moving forward, because now we are branching out from beyond just the list that Gary Gygax provided us. And the patron poll that's going to be posted along with this episode is going to be for episode 109. So the candidates for episode 109 are going to be Terry Pratchett's The Color of Magic, Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire, and Kai Ashante Wilson's The Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps. So you can go ahead and, as a patron, decide which of those four titles we're going to be covering for episode 109. And we look forward to hearing which one you end up choosing for us. So, Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I've had a blast. All right. See you in the stacks, everybody. Read on. The library is closed.